Kids, are you excited for Christmas? For you, Christmas can't come soon enough. For mom and dad, they think of all they have to do. And what is this week and next week and batteries to put into toys when you get them and things to assemble, right? Do you remember C.S. Lewis, what he said? Narnia is a land where it was always winter but never Christmas. Because you're thinking, oh, when will it come? Well, that summary, in some ways, is the Christian life in a nutshell. We are a waiting people. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people have been waiting ever since the first promise of Christmas in Genesis 3.15, when God promised a conquering son to come and destroy the works of the devil and crush the seed of Satan. Throughout the Old Testament, you see the longing of this. Hundreds of years go by, in fact, 4,000 years go by from that promise until the fulfillment of it in Matthew 1. That's a long time. We also are awaiting people. The season of Advent reminds us of that. They were waiting for the coming of Christ the first time. We are waiting for the return of Christ in glory. And today we look at a promise that finds its fulfillment in God becoming man. God with us. The joy of Christmas. The goodness of the gospel. And we start with the Old Testament promise from Isaiah 7. Do you remember from your Bible, children, that the kings of Israel were very disobedient. The nation divided after Solomon. The northern tribes, ten of them, were called Israel. The two southern tribes are called Judah. They are the continuing of David's line. Well, about, seven, about 200 years after that happens, Isaiah 7 picks up the story. This is true history. And the kings before this had been prosperous, but now King Uzziah dies. Isaiah the prophet who speaks the word of God to God's people, sees the Lord high and lifted up. He is told by God, when you go forth, the word of God will harden this people. But he goes forth by the power of the Spirit of God in the midst of international intrigue, a lot of escalating war. The question of Isaiah 1 to 39 is whom will we trust? It's a very prevalent question for us today as well. In their day, it was, do we trust this nation that's rising in the northeast, Assyria? They're powerful, they're strong, and they're scary. Or do we trust in God, his word, and his covenant promises? The background to this is Ahaz is a wicked man the man that is in our text here today, this king. He shut the doors of the temple. He would later burn his sons in sacrifice. Early in his reign, the king of Israel and the king of Syria come to him and say, let's make a deal. Now what's interesting is that Israel and Syria were long-standing enemies. But in light of the threat of Assyria, they come together. Ahaz, the king of Judah, says, I don't want your deal. They come and they invade the city of Jerusalem. Ahaz hears of the invasion, and the text says in Isaiah 7, verse 2, his heart shook. Has your heart shaken with fear? You get bad news? You, you feel it physically, don't you? Emotionally. 
Ahaz then says, okay, we've got a battle. He goes out to the water ducts to try to secure water for the city, Isaiah 7, verse 3. It's at that point that God sends the prophet Isaiah to this king. He says to the king, stand firm on God's promises. Don't fear these nations. In fact, they are like stumps that are smoking but are really about to be put out. They won't last. Don't worry about what they'll do. Remember God's promise to David and his promise to Abraham and his promise to Adam and Eve. He will not let his people go. Trust him. God says further, verses 15 and 16, in fact, I will crush Syria, God says. In three years, they'll be gone. In 65 years, the nation of Israel will be no more, the northern kingdom. What God said is exactly what happened. In 722, the Assyrians took Israel captive. Ahaz is terrified. The plot is against his life. It's a real plot. They were going to come and try to assassinate the king. They were going to place their own ruler in place of him. And yet, Isaiah comes and says, God tells you to stand firm in your faith. If you don't, be warned, you won't stand at all. We read this chapter and it sounds a lot like the world we live in right now. The headlines, right? We live in difficult times. When there's a crisis, where do we put our trust? It's easy to look within or look around and panic. And then sin against God and those we love. And try to fix the problem. Rather than turning to God and saying, God, I trust you. You are a real, living, personal, triune God. You care for me. You love me. You will not let me go. Help me by your spirit to stand in your promises. And when I'm too weak, uphold me by your righteous hand. Ahaz says, trust God. In fact, Isaiah says to Ahaz, trust God. In fact, I'm going to give you a sign, Ahaz. God is so gracious to his people. Do you remember, children, some of the Old Testament signs? God said to Noah, after the flood, I will never flood the earth again. And what's the sign of that promise of God? The rainbow. God says to you in the new covenant in Christ, I give you the signs of baptism in the Lord's Supper, signs of my gospel, my covenant, my love, my promises to you. Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. See that in verse 12? It sounds spiritual, but it's the height of unbelief stubbornness and hard-heartedness. We don't know what God would have given him. In fact, it says here, yeah, it could, could have been. If he had asked for a sign, what could it have been? We don't know. But he didn't want one. In fact, behind the scenes, 2 Kings 16, you can read that this afternoon, tells us what he was doing. He was already plotting with Assyria to do what he wanted to do, which is to save his own skin. That's what he's doing. He doesn't need God. He doesn't need Isaiah. He's got Assyria. I've got real problems here, Isaiah. Stop bothering me. Go away. I don't want to hear from God. That's what he's saying. 
Assyria will help me defeat Syria and Israel. You see how he's misusing the Bible? Just like Satan did with Jesus. He would not have been putting God to the test if he asked for a sign. This is God's gracious condescension to him in mercy. And you know what Isaiah says, Ahaz? You're going to get a sign anyway. And that sign's going to come through the birth of a child who will be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. This is an amazing promise, children. First, it's speaking of Isaiah's own son. Look at chapter 8. Do you notice here the name in verse 3 of chapter 8? The longest title of anyone in the Bible. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Anybody choose that for a birthday or a birth announcement card? (laughs) Not too many of those today. Isaiah's wife would bear this son. And if you notice chapter 8, verse 4, and chapter 7, verse 16, do you see the parallel? Before this boy is a toddler, before he knows really how to talk very well, this threat of Syria and Israel will be no more. Isaiah's son would be a sign of God present with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. But this is about much more than Isaiah's son. This is how Hebrew prophecy works in some ways. There's a double fulfillment. It'll be 700 years before the true fulfillment of this prophecy comes. Isaiah's son was not born of a virgin. Isaiah's son is not God in the flesh. Double fulfillment. Do you ever go out to the mountains? You're driving towards Colorado. Our family would do this. Who spots the Rocky Mountains first? And when you see them from a distance, they look like they're all on the same level, don't they? But when you drive into Denver and up and over the passes, you see layers upon layers. That's what's going on with Hebrew prophecy. What would happen to Isaiah, uh, to Ahaz, do you wonder? Everything God said would happen did. He entered into a covenant with Assyria. He spurned the covenant God had made with David. He doesn't need that. He doesn't want that. By entering into a covenant with Assyria, he gives money to them. The temple is plundered. He leads the nation into godless worship. He adopts Assyria's idols as his own. God offered to be with Ahaz to bless him. But if he refuses, which he did, God said, I will still be with Ahaz. But it's not a blessing, loved ones. It's a curse. It's judgment. Things are never the same after Ahaz in the line of David. God keeps his promises. And it will be 700 years when a little family from the line of David will be blessed by God's grace, and the fulfillment of this prophecy will come. First, from promise. Secondly, to fulfillment. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see this is a really helpful way to know how we read our Bibles. The New Testament interprets the Old. So we look upon what God had said and we see how trustworthy he is, how your Bible right before you is the very word of God. 
It is God speaking to you today in his word, just as God spoke to the people of Israel and Ahaz through Isaiah the prophet. When Matthew writes his gospel, there's no son of David on the throne. The Romans are occupying Jerusalem, as had the Babylonians, and had, as had the Assyrians before that. God has been silent for hundreds of years. Is God alive? Does God care? You might wonder that very thing. Here we read of a son that would be born through the line of David. His name would be Emmanuel. But how would this promised son of David come into the world? Joseph might be 18 to 21. Mary is probably about 13 years old. She's a virgin. They're betrothed to be married. That means they're not yet married legally in terms of the consummated part of marriage, but it's a legal binding status. It would last this betrothal sometimes for a whole year. It's during this time that Joseph finds out his fiancée is pregnant. Can you imagine young people, older people? He's not the father. He and everyone else assumes she's been unfaithful. Talk about gut-wrenching. He has two options as a Jewish man. Publicly disgrace her or divorce her quietly. He's a just man. He loves God. He trusts the Lord. And he's kind. You see how those things go together? Just and kind. So much like God himself. He thinks about these things, verse 20. He doesn't just impulsively do what the flesh and his sin would tell him to do. He loves Mary deeply. And he decides to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, Matthew 1. A dream. This is not like a dream you kids might have with pink elephants. Or, mom and dad, do you ever have a sports dream? My wife does. She's a basketball player. Sports dreams where you make the winning shot or you miss the winning shot, bringing you back. This is not like that. This is God speaking in a dream, special revelation to Joseph, an angel, a messenger of God. Joseph, Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. This is not what you think it is. You've put the wrong piece into the puzzle. It doesn't fit. Now the right piece is there. This changes everything. Joseph, by the Spirit of God, wakes up. He believes God's word. He trusts the Lord and he obeys. And what's happening here is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy from 700 years before. This is a powerful argument for the truth of Christianity. Jesus has come to be born of a virgin. We confess that today in the Apostles' Creed. And we confessed it there because the Bible teaches it. This is nothing new for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hovered over the waters at creation. And now here is Christ who brings the new creation. And the Holy Spirit gives a baby to a young virgin girl in Nazareth. And the baby grows in her womb. 
just as you children grew in your mother's womb. At eight weeks, the baby is the size of a kidney bean. At 33 weeks, the size of a pineapple. And she would deliver the baby, blood, placenta, and all. Why do I say that? Because the birth was ordinary. The conception is of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. You might say, this is fanciful stuff. We send rockets into space. We have TV shows that say Mythbusters. Not true. We don't believe this. Remember the story of C.S. Lewis? He was talking with a friend who was an unbeliever. They were listening to Christmas carols. The friend said, isn't it good that we now know better than they did? Lewis said, well, I'm afraid you'll have to explain. Isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? C.S. Lewis looked at his friend. Don't you think they knew that? That's the whole point. It's a miracle of God. Christianity is a supernatural religion. At the time of Jesus' birth, there were people who said, this is scandalous. Mary and some Roman soldier, something really wicked happened. No, it's a miracle of God's grace. You might say, well, my mind doesn't get it. Of course we don't. God did this. Can we work out in our mind how God created the world by speaking it? Can we work out in our mind how God raised this same Jesus, his son, from the dead? Or how God gives the miracle of new birth to his people to trust Jesus? As one writer says, we would need to be God to work out all that he does. The word became flesh, John 1, and dwelt among us. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. That means, children, he took on body and soul. He didn't just pretend to be a human. The glory of the incarnation is not a humanized God, not a deified man, but one who is all that God is, and at the same time, all that man is, without sin, without mixing up the divine and human. That key, without sin. Jesus is truly God and truly man. How could he be born without sin? Do you wonder that, children? We're all born dead in our sin because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Was that meaning then that Mary is not a sinner? No. Mary was born in sin just like every one of us. Mary needed salvation from the child that she would carry in her womb. The Holy Spirit does this. That's how he is born, sinless. But why? Why is the virgin birth important? Why is it true that without the virgin birth there is no Christianity? He had to be a true and sinless man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature that has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. But none of us, because we're sinners, could satisfy for the sins of anyone else or ourselves. 
he became a man to represent us as the perfectly obedient last Adam. The first Adam sinned. So did Abraham and was born in sin after Adam. And David was born in sin. And Israel went into exile because they disobeyed the Mosaic Covenant. We just saw that in Isaiah 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his, wom- his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that, Galatians 4, we might receive adoption as sons. The virgin birth sets forth the divinity of Christ and his sinless humanity. It shows us the kindness and grace and the love of God for sinners like us. The angel, do you notice in Matthew 1, tells Joseph if it's a boy or girl. Now, that might not be much to us. We have technology. But do you know that back then they didn't? (laughs) You know that. (laughs) But we sometimes can read this and not really see it and not be struck by the wonder of this. Not only did the angel say it's a boy, the angel gave his name, Matthew 121. What's that? Jesus. That's a common name in that day, like Bob or Bill or Joe or Mike. A lot of people had that name. It came from the Old Testament Joshua. What does it mean? We sing the name Jesus. We read of Jesus in the Bible. What does his name mean? God saves us from our sins. That's our great need as sinners, to be reconciled to a holy God. That's why the virgin birth is central to the message of the gospel. God is holy, holy, holy. We are sinners. We need a mediator to come to bring us to God. It's important that we don't think of this just as some kind of business transaction. The Father has loved his Son from all eternity. The eternally beloved Son comes to share with us the love the Father has always lavished on him. To bring us into the life that is his. So if you trust Jesus by faith, not only are you forgiven... Not only are you righteous in God's sight now, but you are loved as a child of God, and by the Spirit, you can cry out, Abba, Father. God loves you with the same love with which he has loved his Son for all eternity. So you say, I I doubt. I'm riddled with sin. So I doubt God could love me. You struggle there? I think we all do. Michael Reeves talks about this. This is day-to-day our Christian struggle. And that is why we struggle. Because we buy the satanic inversion of the gospel that says, once I sort myself out, then God will love me. What would any kind father think hearing that from his child or mother? That our child thinks he or she needs to earn our love. 
Beloved, you can rest in Christ, his forgiveness, his righteousness, his love for you today. There is salvation in no other name. Not only is he true man, he is true and righteous God. That by the power of his divine nature, he bears in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and obtains for and restores to us righteousness and life. There's a lot of things you might think you want this Christmas. And a lot of good gifts to give. It's wonderful to give and it's wonderful to receive. Humbly, a gift, isn't it? The gift we need most this Christmas is the gift of forgiveness. People who realize that become loving people. One man says, people don't fall out of love in their relationships. They fall out of forgiveness. How often is that true? A marriage, siblings, a church family, a neighborhood, a school, friends. Jesus came to give us at this Advent time, a new beginning. You might think, that's what I need today. Probably all of us. You look back over the last year, how many sins, how many struggles, how much weariness, how much death, how much sorrow. The weary world. Don't look back on the past with regret today. Look up to Christ, who is your joy. God is teaching us today to depend on him. Joy means Jesus first, others second, yourself last. One author said that. That's, I think, a helpful way to think about it. Joy this Christmas time. He is Jesus. He is Emmanuel. Do you see that in Matthew 1.23? God with us. God is with you in the womb of your mother, at the end of your life in a nursing home. God is with you every day in between. This is saying God is with his people in a special covenant-keeping way. His promise to love you, to bless you, to never forsake you. God with us. This is really the whole book of Matthew. This promise is here in Matthew 1. It's also where we were, those of us who were here last week in Matthew 18. Do you remember that? God's promise to purify his church. He is with his church in that. And at the end of Matthew, go into all the nations, make disciples. Behold, I am with you always, God says, even to the very end of the age. Our situation is not really much different than Isaiah and Assyria. Fears and threats without and within. God says, I've given you a sign. The sign of my son. The virgin birth. I've created you, God says, for fellowship with me. To enjoy me. To delight in me. To have a relationship. To speak to the Lord in prayer and to respond to God in praise from his word and to hear God speaking to you in his word. You have a Savior who is with you. He knows what it's like to suffer, to be betrayed. When you are overcome with weakness and sin, don't turn within and stay there. But look to your Savior who deals gently with us in our weakness and sin. That's the kind of Savior he is. 
He's with you by the Spirit living in you. God with us is not a fairy tale. The supernatural birth of Jesus is the only way to account for the life that he lived, the death that he died, and his resurrection. You know that people have been lying about this from the beginning. At his birth, a Roman soldier did it. At the end of his life, he didn't die on the cross. Or the disciples took the body and hid it. What's the real story? A virgin birth by the sovereign, miraculous Holy Spirit. A life when he came to live with sinners, to heal the sick, to open the eyes of the blind, to feed the hungry, to bless the poor in spirit. What's the real story of his death? He died on a real wooden cross in our place because he loves his people so much for our sin. What's the story at the end of that? A bodily resurrection from the dead. Beloved, two pillars, his birth and his resurrection, that say there's something different about Jesus that is not true of anyone else, that tells you of the truthfulness of Christianity, that tells you and I if salvation is to come to us, it cannot come from within. It must come from outside this world. And that's what God has done. The Son of God becomes man. A miraculous birth. A substitutionary death and a death-defeating and destroying resurrection. Oh, come, let us adore the Christ child. Amen. Let's stand in response and sing, turning to page 9 as we sing verse 1.